Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Also, check out at EOSceneFrom on Twitter or use the hashtag SceneFromAbove. I'll do the launches. Last time we had 20. This time, recording on the 27th of February 2019, we've had 25. So only five have gone up. The main thing that's gone up that I wanted to mention was Egypt Sat A. Now, this is a replacement for Egypt Sat 2, which Wikipedia informs me failed in 2014 and 20, April 2015. It had some altitude issues. Um, Previously, it had some battery capacity issues. So the insurance payout from this loss resulted in the manufacture of Egypt Sat A. So I'm not entirely sure what Egypt Sat A is, but if it's what Egypt Sat 2 was, it's going to be a one meter pan and a four meter multispectral. It had a problem on launch. It's okay now. Uh, it was a delayed launch, originally planned in 2018, and obviously was launched this month, 2019. But apparently, it's all good now. Cool. It's kind of a recurring theme, isn't it, that these national countries are having their own satellites. Yeah. Um, and in particular, Africa seems to have quite a few. We certainly know about Morocco sat, don't we, and Nigeria sat. So, yeah, Egypt sat A has joined. It would be good to try and find out who's using the data, whether it's just being used by Egypt's government or whether it's being made commercially available or whatever. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think probably just by the government at the moment, but again, that's just a hunch. Um, let's do the news. 27th of February 2019. We're almost in March. <laughs> Time's blowing by. I often say post of the month, so high expectations for what I'm about to say. But <laughs> I was really drawn by Azavia's post this month by Joe Morrison early in February called Accuracy is in the Eye of the Beholder. It's an interesting post about machine learning and getting the training data and how accurate your labeling is and what the model predicts versus what the label says. And he's got some great examples of cars being detected or misdetected in the imagery as labelers say a tree for example parked under the car parked underneath supersedes what a car is so okay. yeah yeah it's this interesting idea of fuzzy tolerance shall we say I, I don't want to talk too much over the details of the post because it's well worth reading but it's interesting how the labelers versus the machine throws up some interesting and often spurious results okay also what made me laugh was uh, at the end of the post joe writes if you're interested in more detail of anything covered in this post send me an email with the subject line lies and you'll surely get my attention <laughs> <laughs> it's this whole issue of machine learning deep learning pattern matching type stuff it is really interesting at the moment i haven't read this blog post but i will definitely go back and read it but um it sort of ties in a little bit to some of the themes that were being discussed last week at the big data from space conference that i attended over in munich 
And there was a lot of discussion around like how do you, what is accuracy and how do you um, measure any accuracy that's coming out of some of the deep learning models, which are effectively black boxes. And some of the academic work that's now being done is to try and take out some of the layers from the deep learning models and rather than having it just as statistical layers to then try and put back some of the physics that is driving what's happening when you collect the imagery so that you can try and marry up sort of the old school here's a physical model where we we understand the laws of physics and what's going on and we can then model that right the way through to what the image is showing us Um, you can marry that up with what the newer sort of techniques of machine learning are trying to do in terms of statistically pattern matching various different things to try and get this sort of informed model output and I think there's some really really good ideas around at the moment and it's certainly going to be very very interesting over the next couple of years to understand a little bit more about how all of these techniques can start working together to aid us really in in terms of the information that we're getting out of these images. Yeah I'm seeing more posts saying don't forget machine learning is statistics and you know that's been around for a long time and you know be careful that you know what you're doing you know that you understand what what the model's doing it's not this kind of we're, we're sort of digressing from the, the post but the, the other thing that never seems to get mentioned is the overfitting of a model it's just work the fit yes yeah exactly yeah it's well worth a read i would say it, it is the the blog that made me reread it a few times you know at the end where he's saying don't get duped if someone just gives you a, a single impressive accuracy score trying to understand what that actually means it's this whole idea of asking a question followed by a question everybody's only three or four whys or what's away from their own fallibility so you know you, you say <laughs> you say to someone how does the car work and they say well you know you put petrol in and it just goes and you're like well how does it just go and like well you know it burns and the engine goes okay how does it burn in there and you get to the point where you just don't know yeah and that's the danger of here that we we get to the point where we don't fully understand what's going on and that is a that is a dangerous thing yeah so the main couple of news items that i wanted to discuss are actually related to the the blog post that you mentioned in some way the first one is the release of big earthnet which is a large-scale sentinel 2 benchmark archive and it's effectively a whole series of chips so there's nearly six hundred thousand sentinel 2 image patches that can be used for all sorts of various machine learning applications and topics. The tiles were atmospherically corrected using Centucore, and they've also been labeled as well using the Korean Landcover uh, database. They've been out since the beginning of the year, and it's definitely worth having a look at and reading a bit more about this, because this is sort of one of the first sort of really, really big Sentinel-based datasets. Although, that's not to say that there haven't been other machine learning databases that have been put together using Sentinel and other stuff. And the second link that I'll put in the show notes is to a GitHub repository that has links through to quite a large number of um, different satellite imagery data sets that can be used in machine learning in various different ways, mm-hmm. segmentation, object detection, semantic segmentation, that sort of thing. And it's broken down by each of the different use cases and Big EarthNet is in there under chip classification, but there's a whole load of others. And if this is something 
that you're interested in or you want to learn more about, then I would certainly suggest you check out this repository that's hosted by Christopher Rika's GitHub page. Yeah, I mean, this is two huge things that you've just mentioned. I mean, this this GitHub repository, what strikes me more than anything is look at the dates of these projects or examples. They're pretty much all within the last two years. Yeah. Um, and that just shows you how this whole sector has just exploded into life. And the real blocker for the last few years is that although the deep learning models have been developed more and more, the data sets that have been used to train those have been sort of generic uh, image ones. You know, those models just don't translate over to the types of data that we have in Earth observation. And so, like you say, it's only the last two years, really, that we're now beginning to pull together enough specialist earth observation data to be able to do our training for these types of things so hopefully some of the information that we're getting back from these models is going to be more and more impressive i still think we need to be thinking in terms of what the science is in the background that we're trying to model but yeah there's there's so much happening here so much development and so many good results so um yeah i think that's a really positive thing i wanted to mention a quick thing that i saw on the nasa.gov page And it's about human activity in China and India helping the trend in annual leaf area index in the last decade to increase. We are a greener planet today than we were 20 years ago, which is sort of contrary to the popular belief. Yeah, I would not have expected that. It's nice. It's a a sort of feel-good article at last regarding remote sensing, because quite often we're reporting on floods or natural disasters. This is nice. This is is all based on the MODIS sensor. China and India have dominated the percentage change in leaf area index in the last decade. But interestingly, they do a graph of countries, and Brazil is still increasing, but not anywhere near as much as the global average and the countries like brazil drc democratic republic of congo and indonesia that hold the rainforests of this world are not increasing as fast as some of these other places okay the final thing to say is that china is fast becoming a much greener economy it seems after years of what should we say bad publicity is that, is that a fair thing to say you know burning coal and stuff and this is nice evidence that there is more leaf area index, whether that's crops or forests or or, or whatever. It's an interesting geographic change as well, because like you say, some of the, the tropical areas aren't increasing as much. I wonder if there's any implication of the fact that China and India have become greener. What I mean is whether there's any implication of it being at a higher latitude. It it says in the article that a large part comes from programs to conserve and expand forests, reducing the effects of soil erosion. And then in India, you're getting much more intense cultivation. It's just interesting. And another example of of observation opening our eyes to another way of viewing the planet. The final thing that I want to talk about isn't really earth observation per se but i think it's really really important it's something that i saw on paul ramsey's blog basically it's a uh, a staffing <laughs> press release someone is coming to help work on something called the geos library which is an open source library upon which uh, postgis is built so that's the link with paul ramsey postgis geos um but actually, if you there's a there's a really cool if you go to the blog post, there's a really nice uh, diagram 
that shows the link between some of the base libraries, such as GDAL and GEOS, and then all of the various different projects that come off the back of that. And the reason that I wanted to sort of bring this to the attention of our listeners was more to do with the fact that this GEOS library plays into so many different pieces of software, yeah. many of which we'll yep. be using as Earth Observation Specialists, certainly as geospatial specialists. And I had not really hunted out a, a diagram like this in the past to sort of find out how things are, are how, how things interact with each other. So I just thought this would be a really interesting short post for someone to see just how reliant all of our software is really on a two or three or four core libraries. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You don't think about it, do you? That's... No, exactly. And, and I think we have to really thank the people who work on these core libraries because they make every other project obtainable. So I want to sort of do a bit of a trail for what we're going to talk about next time, which is the European DIAS. So ERSC, European Association of Remote Sensing Companies, have produced a spreadsheet. Go and have a look at it. Um, outlines the four different DIAS suppliers. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because we want to both have a look at them in a bit more detail and talk about what we find next time. Uh, we've got a Twitter poll at the moment about your thoughts about the various diocese and if you've got any comments or experiences of using these systems or maybe sort of handy hints then yeah. drop us a email or tweet at us let us know and, and we'll we'll take a look yes and including if you're one of the organizations that creates the diocese as well it'd be useful to get your opinion on how you see them working and what your user base is that you're trying to attract that's it for the news. Agreed. Okay, so I think we should move on to our topic, which is CubeSats. And I have something to say about CubeSats, but I'm going to defer a little bit to you on this one for parts of it. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about CubeSats. So shall, shall I sort of introduce it a little bit? Yeah. Okay, so a lot of things have happened in the space sector again we're kind of talking <laughs> talking loosely about the sector but small satellites or cubesats and also there are things called nanosats or picosats but let's sort of broadly group them all together into this kind of small satellites and i think we're going to use the cubesats small sats interchangeably is that okay with you yeah i think so yeah, yeah. we're sort of talking about satellites below 500 kilograms flying in low earth orbit which is about 2000 kilometers of altitude and the majority currently operate in a sun synchronous orbit that means the satellite sort of observes any area at the same local time on a periodic basis and at the moment it feels as if there's a lot of investment and, and speculation and so lots of different small sats are going up yeah and the indian space agency is really dominating or has certainly been a large part in contributing to the deployment of small sats and says that small satellites are a disruptive technology for the space industry you only need modest facilities to design and build these small satellites and it's sort of being bolstered and boosting innovative startups and i thought that was quite a, a nice way to encapsulate what we're talking about the other thing i think that's important to say is that they're, they're still very new technology aren't they really yeah i mean i think personally what 
really captured my imagination was the idea of building a satellite, launching it and getting some data back very quickly. Sorry, satellites did Carbonite 1, I think, design, build and launch in six months. And I guess now is a good time to sort of mention the company that's most associated with small sats, CubeSats, and that's Planet. In 2013, they built three satellites. They were called Alexander, Graham and Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, you can check this out. And they developed these at a cost of $7,000. Wow. Okay. Basically out of a garage yeah. in California. If we sort of fast forward to today where companies like Rocket Labs, the Humanity Star, there's an interview with Peter Beck, who is the founder of um, Rocket Labs. And he said that the cost to launch a 3U CubeSat, so that's generally the size, isn't it? So that's 10 by 10 by 30 yeah. centimetres. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's what 3U is, uh, dimensions. The cost to launch was £170,000 per CubeSat. And he said they were backed up for the next two years. So there's a huge demand to get CubeSats into orbit. This is the thing I find really interesting, is that 2013, 2014 was the start of all this. So you've just mentioned 2013 in terms of planet. And I know that it was at the um, Remote Sensing and Photogrammetry Society's conference in 2013 when I heard a talk from the founder of Clyde Space, who at the time I think was the first UK company to be manufacturing small CubeSats. And, mm -hmm. and what I loved was he turned up and basically said, I think it was a model rather than the actual thing, but he basically said, here it is. <laughs> he, he could hold it in his hand. And every other discussion in uh, at the conference that year was about things like MVSAT and, and yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, all these huge systems that are up there. And then in 2014, SSTL, so Surrey Satellite Technology, launched Tech Demosat, which was an in-orbit technology demonstrator that, again, was built and launched as a small satellite in order to prove that certain th technologies could be, could be used and it would work. And then you sort of fast forward four years and you've got all these new satellites going up. I mean, we've got Planet, which is basically doing small sats and, and CubeSats day to day. And they're able to just get, get them up there, get them into an orbit and get data back from them. But you've also got CubeSats still being used as technology demonstrators and rapid ways to prototype different sensors and things and test them out. I think it's that that's really interesting is that we've gone from these few radical ideas about four or five years ago to a point where now loads and loads of people are using these CubeSats in so many different ways. Yeah, just sort of going back to Planet, I mean, they're, they're formed from sort of three ex-NASA guys who initially worked on something called PhoneSat. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard Planet talk before about basically what a dove is, is effectively a mobile phone with a very good telescope tucked <laughs> out of the International Space Station. That, that's, that's sort of what it is, you know, if you were to talk to the man on the street. And I rewatched Will Marshall's TED talk this afternoon. It's great because it's, it's so inspirational. It's like, yes, we've woken up. <laughs> Our industry's woken up a bit. Yeah. But we've, we've kind of come alive a bit. And, and this, it's very powerful, as you say, that it brings out, this isn't, a, this isn't a scale model. This is the size of it. Yeah. And it's got to the point now where you can go on websites like pumpkininc.com and you can download a price list to build your own CubeSat, <laughs> right? All you need is basically an antenna, a radio transmitter for uplinking commands or downloading data. You need a chip on board, 
you know, yeah. and you need a, you need a power supply and then whatever sensor. CubeSats, the record launch is sort of 70 plus on one rocket. So the cost to put these into orbit is significantly cheaper. I assume many of them are built from largely off-the-shelf components as well. The fact that so many off-the-shelf components can be used must also make it very easy to almost keep all of these launches ahead of the curve because if you build a huge satellite all the parts have to be sourced and created and then it all has to be brought together make sure it's in a clean room then it has to be tested then it has to be tested not just in terms of whether the satellite works but whether it can withstand all the various pressures of, of launch and things like that and then it gets move to a launch vehicle and then it gets launched and that whole process takes time so by the time this the satellite is up in space you might technologically actually be behind the curve whereas you have so much more agility with these yeah, small yeah. satellites and you can you can really tweak them very quickly and i suppose because they're so small you can move them around on earth much more quickly so if you had a couple of weeks before a, a launch I, I presume you can make a tweak and then courier it out to wherever it is really rapidly and get it on on your launch vehicle as you can probably tell my enthusiasm for it i'm totally sold on this this idea of rapid prototyping testing and getting it up i mean we've, i've talked a little bit in the past about open cosmos the uk company and basically you know for a fraction of the cost that it would have been you can get your satellite in orbit with them in a fraction of the time yeah the whole sort of satellite space sector is in such an incredible period there's just never been a better time to be involved in this sort of science so my question to you is when we launch larger satellites we know roughly how they're going to behave and we know that the data quality is going to be usually top-notch unless something goes wrong so what is the data quality like from cubesats because like you say they're effectively a mobile phone with a big telescope on the end. Um, from what I've seen, from the planet data that I've used, I haven't had any reason to think that there's a problem with the quality of the data. Yeah. I think as well, that's something that we mustn't forget is that some of these organizations and companies, they're not only pushing forward the hardware technology, but they're also dealing with the data technology and the software. So there's a whole ecosystem that is changing because of effectively the change in one hardware technology so it's it's quite interesting that it's not just the cubesats but it's everything that comes from those cubesats down the sort of value chain i can't believe i just said that just as much effort is going into making sure that the sensor is working properly as it is to build the sensor and to get it into orbit and to keep it in the correct orbit and all this kind of stuff space is tough but the multispectral side of things and more spectral bands, that's probably where the race is on now Yeah, in the CubeSat world, I would think. In some ways, I think this is the perfect technology to be able to push that whole hyperspectral concept because I know that there'll be lots of hardware companies who have hyperspectral technologies that currently go into sort of aerial systems or maybe onto to drones and UAVs that sort of thing well you could easily see how those could just be transferred into some sort of technology demonstrator small sat cube sat and, and launch just to see what it what it returns yeah and i think we've mentioned on the podcast as well that there is a hyperspectral satellite up there that, that's doing this sort of thing at the moment so yeah i think the the more competition there is to try and really lower the cost and increase the, the data quality that comes out of those hyperspectral sensors that would be really quite amazing actually 
I mean, I think it's a pretty exciting time. Do you think it would be fair to say that CubeSats have really fueled the whole revolution in, that we're seeing at the moment in Earth observation? I mean, I know in part the amount of data that's being collected by the Sentinels and, and being made available by Landsat has also contributed to that. But the fact that Planet said that they were going to image every location on the Earth every day and have done it, I mean, I think that is a huge inspiration to a lot of people and and has really pushed forward the sort of modern age of remote sensing. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, or I do. Or am I overselling it? <laughs> no, I think it's fair. I mean, where would we be without this? Yeah. All these different data sources, they can all complement each other. I've never enjoyed this kind of, well, we've got a drone, why do we need this? Yeah. yeah. Or we use Worldview 3, why do we need this? It's sort of, you're deliberately ruling out another opportunity if we didn't have the CubeSats, if we didn't have this high-frequency revisit temporal side, you'd be lucky to get a couple of images of high-quality, high-resolution. I'm trying to sort of loosely define it at any regularity. And, of course, CubeSats don't solve the cloud problem, but the more images you acquire, the better the chances are of having some cloud-free acquisitions. I really think that CubeSats and this temporal frequency has definitely changed the world. Cicero, Australia's science agency, they have also acquired, I think it's Australia's first CubeSat that will be looking at infrared, basically for environmental monitoring of extremes. So, so loads of different organizations, not just the commercial ones, are getting in on this. Hopefully, a lot of the data will be made if not freely available, which would be amazing if it was, but certainly affordable, that would be really helpful as well. Because the next challenge, which you've alluded to, will be how do we then start to use so many different data sources to basically create meaningful analytics and meaningful applications? These things are great for technology demonstrators. The cost to launch has fallen and there's lots more interest and innovation in this area. I think that's quite a good place to wrap up, actually. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know that we need your help to make a special podcast episode later in the year. We'd like to hear from you, the listener. So we encourage you to record two to three minutes of audio or write a couple of paragraphs about what you think is exciting in remote sensing as you see it and particularly what's happening in your part of the world. Please include your name or Twitter handle so we can name check you in the podcast, but please don't make it a sales pitch for your own organization as that won't make the edit. We reserve the right to edit what you send us so that it fits the podcast format, but we'll try to keep the message true to what you're trying to say. You can send your contributions to seenfromabovepodcast, or one word, at gmail.com before April the 25th, 2019, and we look forward to finding out what you have to say. If you've got any comments or opinions or links about the DS, then please do drop us a line. But as ever, any requests, topics to discuss, guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using the EO Scene From account or our personal accounts at AJG Jogger and at Map underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch with us and help us build a vibrant community around our podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's all for now. Thanks, Alistair. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Oh, it's not it for the news. Um, no, it's not it for the news. <laughs> what <a> shambles. <laughs>
have to go alone The life is growing legs and walking past you If I could ask you Pick up the Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.